This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by Away. Away makes first class luggage at coach prices that allow you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off a suitcase, go to awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. That's awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. It's Tuesday, August 21st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill with me in studio. For the first time in a long time, it's investor at large, Tim Hansen. How are you? It's been too long. It, well, I was thinking about this this it's morning. It's my fault. I've been out of the office. Well, no, I think we we've had one of those uh, summer schedules. We're like ships passing in the night in terms of our vacation. Yeah, yeah. I was out. You were, you know, all that sort of thing. So. I was working remotely for some of that time. Okay. Just to, just to be fair. <laughs> you know what? When I was on Cape Cod and up in Maine, I was not working remotely. I was on. Uh, you you earned the time off. You deserve it. Uh, so. We have talked recently on this podcast about the broader housing industry um, in terms of the real estate market, talking about Zillow and Redfin, and talking about home improvement with Home Depot and their results. Let's start with actual home builders today, and that's Toll Brothers. Uh, Toll Brothers stock up 12% this morning. Third quarter profits for the luxury home builder came in higher than expected. Toll Brothers also raised guidance. It kind of seems like some people were surprised by this. I get the feeling that you were not. Well, it's it's interesting. Toll Brothers, you know, is within the home building industry is generally regarded as as the luxury home builder. So bigger ticket homes, um, higher price points, so on and so forth, with a lot of exposure to uh, California. Some of the markets have been a little bit hotter. You know, I think with um, recently rising interest rates. If you look, you know, they had a really strong second quarter as well. Um, uh, quarter prior to this, and uh, you know, if you look at the data and the recent rising interest rates, I think people were expecting them to have cooled off a little bit. But they said no. Basically, every market remained strong, and um, you know, you know, they they liked their backlog. Profitability was stable, so they were feeling pretty good. And and um, you know, I think there are a number of demographic trends that point to continued strength in the housing market. I mean, it's been going for a couple of years now. I think the last time I was on the show, we talked about Home Depot and people reinvesting in their homes. And I and I think you're seeing, you know, I think there are a couple interesting trends. One is um, older Americans, 55, 65, and older, are owning their homes longer and buying retirement homes, and you can expect them to live longer. So that housing stock's not going to turn over maybe as frequently as it would have in the past. Uh, second, you're finally seeing like 30 mid 30 year olds finally, uh, you know, get together and and start homes, and then as a knock-on effect of that, the renter rate overall is coming down. Now, where it settles out is kind of an interesting question, because I mean, if you look at you know, prior to the housing bubble, it was at around 35%. During the housing bubble, when everybody was buying homes, it dropped all the way to about 30%. Right now, it had spiked Following the housing crisis at about 37%, now it's about 36%. So, does it go back to 35%? In which case, maybe this housing boom is going to be not so not so sustainable in the future, or does it start to drop again um, and get closer to like maybe settle out at 33, 32%? And then I think you would see a couple more years of, of, of strong growth in the industry. So, one of the things that came up recently was uh, Glenn Kelman, who's the CEO at Redfin. Talking about in terms of their latest report, how uh, buyer demand is waning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Redfin as tying in with Tolba. I think of Redfin as being a little bit more towards the luxury end of the market. They're not. They're not trying to be uh, all things to all home buyers. And I'm. I'm curious how 
what we just saw today from Toll Brothers sort of squares with that, or if we're, it's always going to be the case that the home, the people who are actually building the homes, um, they're going to be sort of the leading indicator, leading into as opposed to the uh, the red fins of the world. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um... Because I had also read the reports about buyer demand waning, and obviously you would expect that in a rising interest rate environment. Um, I find your characterization of Redfin as being on the luxury end of the market kind of interesting because I thought, and, and I don't know a ton about Redfin, uh, you know, I always thought their main um, competitive point was lower rates, like we compete on price. Um, so I'd figured it was more of a middle market uh, exposure. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure. Um, if we're talking about housing, and it's a question of like who's right between you or me, I'm going with you. No, I, <laughs> I appreciate that, but God, God knows I can be wrong pretty frequently. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting about home builder versus ultimately a broker or a realtor is that the home builder controls their portfolio, and a realtor is only as good as the portfolio, the inventory that they get from people, right? Um, so it could be that you're seeing a little bit of what we saw a few years ago, which is that two-speed economy, where wealthier people um, are still feeling really positive, but in a rising interest rate environment, the more price-sensitive consumer is backing off a little bit, and maybe you see less of that in whole in Toll Brothers' portfolio, a little bit more of it in Redfin, which would you know, results in the in the in the incongruous guidance, but um, yeah, well, I mean, time will tell. It'll be interesting to see how the non-luxury home builders report through um, and what they're seeing in this in this this time period, because obviously they'll have ex- very different exposures. Yeah, that was that was one thought I had as you were talking. Just in the same way that when it really has been the case for the last few years, when Home Depot reports their results, the safe way to bet is Lowe's is going to report. Roughly the same thing, mm-hmm. slightly less good, but still in directionally in the same way. And I'm, I'm, I am curious now to see, Dr. Horton, what kind of numbers are they putting up? Yeah, I mean, people are definitely investing in their homes. Um, I, I was recently doing a lot of reading about the pool industry and uh, Pool Corp, which is you know uh, basically a vertically integrated distributor of pool products, and they're saying that. Um, people who had put off investing in either building a new pool or or doing uh, maintenance on an expensive part of their pool, um, they're starting. They've been seeing a multi-year trend towards people um, doing that work now. So again, if you have a pool, you're you're probably at the higher end of the of the market. So you're a little bit more insulated than maybe some other people. But um, yeah, all all of these are really interesting trends to watch. Shares of Tesla are down 16 percent since earlier this month when Elon Musk published his. Tweet about going private. Hashtag funding secured. Um, <laughs> the latest wrinkle in what is really the best drama on Wall Street is this survey uh, the Wall Street Journal reported on of 22 auto parts suppliers, and of the 22, 18 of them believe that Tesla is now a financial risk to their business. They basically think either they're not going to get paid or their uh, their payments are going to be delayed. But um, this. I, I tell me what I should think about this because part of me looks at this and says, "Well, this is uh, in some ways a a very niche version of the consumer sentiment survey that comes out every month." Where you're just yeah, sort of I think like, there are only sort of twenty three respondents. So, yeah, you know, statistical and it's just sort of like, ah, "How are you feeling?" Yeah, yeah. And so that that to me is is uh, less concrete than actual results. But by the same token. It's uh, it's just not a good look. This is one more thing that just goes to not great optics for Tesla. Yeah, I mean, I think the business owners surveyed are absolutely right to consider Tesla a financial risk. 
Um, I think most of them are relatively smaller companies, for example. And and what's interesting, there are two sides of this coin. You know, looking back historically at Tesla's accounts payable uh, numbers, their uh, days payable outstanding and the percentage of their payables relative to the size of their balance sheet really hasn't actually gotten bigger. They're they're pretty much paying today on the same terms they were paying five or six or seven years ago, and uh, presumably the suppliers are the same people. Um, what's different is that the scale of those payables has exploded from, you know, four hundred million dollars back in 2014 to now. Let's see, it's over. It's well over. It's over three billion dollars in payables. So for these relatively smaller businesses, you would expect that the account payable from Tesla, even if they're being paid on substantially the same time frame, um, it's now a really big account, <laughs> which you know, working capital is the lifeblood of a business like that. And Tesla is ostensibly borrowing more and more money from them, um, and obviously that would be a concern for them. You know, but I, the other reason why they should be concerned is that you know previously, four years ago, Tesla had substantially positive networking capital, and today their networking capital is negative two point four billion, which means that they're you know that's there's a two point four billion dollar deficit between what they have liquid and what they don't need to pay liquid. Where's that money going to come from? Um, some of it is current debt, which you could. You know, Elon Musk is kind of a magic man with his balance sheet. Maybe he can extend it. He can do something. But even if you net that out, there's still negative 300 million on their networking capital. So if you're a supplier, I, yeah, you should be concerned. Um, now they probably want to have a long-term relationship with Tesla, so you might not expect them to get aggressive. But it's certainly a stealth liability, or not stealth liability. We're talking about it. It's a big liability <laughs> on their on their balance sheet. The Wall Street Journal's reporting <laughs> on it. I don't think it's stealth anymore. Um, and then you know, the, and 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 one of the reasons for that is this other line item of accrued expenses is is building up on their balance sheet, and some of that is associated with the warranties and repurchase uh, guarantees they have with cars that are out in the world right now. And if you believe some of the reports that bumpers are falling off in the rain and so on and so forth, you know those liabilities could ultimately eat up the company as well. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting story. There are two sides to the coin. I think you know Tesla saying we're not substantially different from what we were a couple of years ago is true, but they're also bigger, and there's some other things sneaking up on the balance sheet. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, this this is we talk uh, at various points about different businesses that have a great story attached to them. And this is one of them. I mean, Tesla has always been, among other things, a, a really great story. And that's why I think this survey is slightly damaging, just because it's one more thing that Elon Musk and his management team have to respond to, as opposed to focusing on the job at hand. Well, the other thing to remember is a great business is needs to create a great ecosystem, right? You've got to not only be great with your product and your employees, you've got to be great with your customers, you've got to be great with your suppliers. I mean, you know, you talk to all stakeholders. Jim Senegal, you know, uh, you know, what is the the great story where you know, um, he went proactively to a supplier and said, "We're squeezing you too hard. I'm going to pay yeah. you more." We've run the numbers. Yeah, there's and, no and way you're making money on our. We figured account. out that you're going to go out of business if we keep these terms. So let's get some more favorable terms for you. For you, exactly. So, and you've got to build that that ecosystem because that's the only way you achieve sustainable success. Now, if he puts a bunch of his suppliers out of business inadvertently, but saves Tesla, I mean, that maybe is just a stay rather than a sustainable solution. Um, so we'll see. I mean, like I said, there's a there's a, a, a relatively well known, but maybe obscure in the general population balance sheet metric called the Altman Z score, which like measures different balance sheet requirements. And if you're below 1.8 for a period of time, 
Professor Altman predicts he'll be bankrupt within two years, and I think Tesla now is at like 1.1, and they've been there for a while. So we'll see what happens. I love that story about Jim Senegal because it's a wonderful counterbalance to another story about Senegal, which is when he was on the phone with Howard Schultz from Starbucks, and I think Schultz was looking for better terms for Starbucks to supply yeah. into Costco, and Senegal said something along the lines of like, "Well, you know, I'm I'm sorry to lose your business, and uh, if you excuse me, I need to call I need to call the person who runs Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> talk to them about their coffee." <laughs> and uh, and you know what, Howard Schultz worked it out, so uh, it's a good for him. There you go. Uh, quick shout out to Away. Away makes affordable, high quality suitcases that charge your phone, and by Cutting out the middleman, Away is able to offer the perfect luggage made with high quality materials at a much lower price. The luggage comes in five different sizes and over 10 colors, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. So if anything breaks, Away will fix it or replace it uh, for the lifetime of the bag, or presumably for your lifetime. Because look, if you that's probably in the fine print. If you kick it. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't it doesn't convey to whoever in your will. Uh, risk free 100 day trial period. So if at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund, no questions asked. I will tell you though, having used away luggage, uh, if you if you you're not going to want to, it's fantastic. You've been doing really well recently, trialing the products of the many new advertisers for the podcast. So let's be clear: the away <laughs> luggage is is not my property; it is the property of the Motley Fool. And so, oh, so I could could I could I sign it out? Absolutely. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Where would stuff. I go about doing that? Um, we can talk after this okay. podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's not to me. It's to the company. How many how many people that we work with listen to this podcast? Because now it's uh, now too it's, many. Now it's just going to be people coming to me like, "Hey, I, I want. I've got a trip this week. Can I borrow weekend. the duffel? It's it's, it's great stuff. Um, and it's not just for us here at the Motley Fool. Away has a special offer for our dozens of listeners. $20 off a suitcase, go to awaytravel.com slash fool, use the promo code fool at checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. Um, you might need some new luggage because you've been traveling. And I'm always, you know, I'm always also cur- working remotely. Also working remotely, <laughs> which requires luggage as well. Um, I'm always curious about when you're uh, traveling, what uh, investment lessons you come back with, uh, business observations, anything financial. Uh, obviously, I want you to relax and enjoy your vacation with your family, but I know I know you well enough to know that uh, the investing part of your brain never shuts off. Well, it's funny. So our trip, our family trip this summer was to Western Canada. Went to Calgary and then the Badlands to see some dinosaurs, and then up into the Rocky Mountains. And obviously, if you go to Canada, wait a second. Yeah, dinosaurs. Dinosaur bone fossils. Okay, so it's in Jurassic Park. Yeah. But it's neat. If you go, you can hike on these trails, and you can see the fossils sort of being exposed in the right. It's neat. It's really cool. The kids liked it. Okay. Um, obviously, you go to Canada. One thing that's ubiquitous in Canada, Tim Hortons. And um, we went there for breakfast, and my kids just could not get enough of the biscuits and the Timbits, which are like the equivalent of Munchkins. And you know, my son has his Robinhood account now, and so he's always on the lookout for you know stocks to buy. And he said, "Can I buy Tim's Hortons stock?" And I said, "Yes, you can." Um, and actually, I told him a story a long time ago when I was in college. I actually bought um, Wendy's stock uh, on the thesis that Baja Fresh, which they owned at the time, um, was going to was was like the next hot concept and way better than Chipotle. Now you fast forward a couple of years, Baja Fresh basically was worthless to Wendy's. Chipotle had gone on to be the winner in the burrito space, obviously since reverted to the mean, um, but made a lot of money on Wendy's because of Tim Hortons. 
I didn't, they'd also owned Tim Hortons, and That's Tim Hortons right. was going crazy for them. They were growing all across Canada into the U.S. So, so I told Ben the story about owning Tim Hortons, and he said, well, I want to buy Tim Hortons stock. And I had fallen out of the loop with Tim Hortons, and when I look back into it, they are now part of Restaurant Brands International. Yes. Uh, QSR, clever ticker. Great ticker. Um, which combines Tim Hortons, Burger King, and Popeyes. And you know, when I, when I when I my my son and I dug into that, he was just blown away that that one company, <laughs> one company could have Tim Hortons, Burger King, and Popeyes. And and so I think that's next on his investment list because he 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 already owns shares of McDonald's on the thesis that people eat unhealthy food and that that's just a durable. Durable thesis forever. So, and he's done well at McDonald's to his credit. He's that's a, that, had a bonkers year overall. That's a great thesis. Yeah, and he's absolutely right. <laughs> Got to keep that. it simple. Um, it is. It is pretty amazing um, when you look at what uh, the QSR management has done in sort of assembling the, this, mm-hmm. this portfolio. And I don't know about you, but I personally am, am thankful that there is not a Popeyes that is physically close to this office <laughs> because I would be there. So often, it's addictive food. I mean, I don't know what they put in the, what they put in. I, yeah, it's no, really it, good. Yeah. So if 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 uh, well, you know, when Ben Ben buys shares, you go go out and support him. <laughs> well, there's certainly not a Tim Hortons around here, so I got, I'm going to have to hit the Popeyes. That'll that'll just be how I'll rationalize it. It's all in the name <laughs> of research, and it's all in the name of supporting. Trust ben. but verify. All right, Tim Hansen, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>